During the course of this series, um, one man's name that I've mentioned from time to time uh, is the name of William Hendrickson. And one of the books that I've recommended, if you want to study some of these things for yourselves in a little bit more detail, is the book that he's written as a commentary to the book of Revelation called More Than Conquerors. I want to begin this evening by actually quoting from the book by way of introduction. And another reason that I want to quote from the book is that I hope you will see that actually it's written in language that you will understand. If you've not yet uh, read a book such as this, and whether you're wondering whether I've mentioned it in the past, well, is that really something I'll be able to get to grips with? Well, let me say the vast majority of you will definitely be able to get to grips with this book. So, as we move into chapter 15, let me just read how William Hendrickson summarises where we're up to and introduces what's coming next. He says this, In the history of the world, a definite and ever-recurring order of events is clearly evident. Through the preaching of the word, applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, churches are established. Again and again this happens. They are light bearers, lampstands. In the midst of a world that lies in darkness, they are blessed with the constant spiritual presence of Christ. That's chapters 1 to 3. Again and again, God's people are persecuted by the world. They're subjected to many trials and afflictions. That's chapters 4 to 7. Again and again, the judgments of God are visited upon the persecuting world. These judgments, again and again, fail to move men to repentance. That's chapters 8 to 11. Again and again, this conflict between the church and the world points to a deeper, more fundamental warfare between Christ and Satan, between the seed of the woman and the dragon. That's chapters 12 to 14. The question which now arises is what happens whenever in the history the trumpets of judgment, the initial plagues, fail to result in penitence and conversion? Does God permit such impenitence, such hardness of heart, to go unpunished until the final judgment of the last day? Must we conceive of God's wrath as being completely pent up until the second coming, until the vintage described in chapter 14. This question is answered in our present vision. The answer in brief is this. Whenever in history the wicked fail to repent in answer to the initial and partial manifestation of God's anger in judgments, the final effusion of wrath follows. It is final because it brings earthly life to an end, to an end, though not complete until the judgment day. These plagues that are following are the last. They leave no more opportunity for repentance. When the wicked, often warned by the trumpets of judgment, continue to harden their hearts, 
death finally plunges them into the hands of an angry God. That's not so difficult, is it? Recommend him to you. And that's how he introduces this next section. We saw back in chapters 8 to 11 the trumpet's warning of impending judgment. But we saw last week the world by and large rejects those warnings and keeps its back turned against God. Now, Jesus had something to say about people who refuse to repent and continue to harden their hearts against him and against the gospel. In Matthew chapter 12, we read these words from Jesus at verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the phrase that Jesus used to speak of himself. So we might read it, if anyone who speaks a word against Jesus Christ, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus is teaching there that there is a hardness of heart and there is a rebellion of God that can reach such a stage in a man or a woman that they have crossed an invisible line and there is no going back. There will be no forgiveness for them in this life and there will certainly be no forgiveness for them in the next. The Apostle Paul teaches the same thing in the book of Romans. In the opening chapter of Romans, Paul is talking about the nature of sin in this world and the nature of sinful men and women in their natural condition, without Christ, without God and without hope. And we've seen from the book of Revelation that Satan is at work in this world and he's using all kinds of means to keep people away from God. And the Apostle Paul explains this in verse 24 of the opening chapter of Romans. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. That means God has abandoned them to the choices they have made. He abandons them to their sin. The beginning of verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Beginning at verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And he talks about some of those things in verses 29 and 30 and 31. Three verses, a big long list 
of the typical things that you'll see in such a man or woman. And then he concludes the chapter with these words, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, knowing it, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Men and women so caught up in sin that God gives them over to it. And one of the things that, Romans, uh, that Revelation 15 and 16 begins to address is that very issue, that God visits sinful men and women with his judgment in this world, in this life. Now there is a great and final day of judgment coming. But God's judgment isn't only about that day. And it isn't all about that day. God moves in judgment against sinful men and women now, today. All through the Christian age, God has been doing this. All through the Old Testament, God was doing it. And often he used the nation of Israel to visit that judgment against sometimes whole cities, whole nations. Moving actively in judgment against sin and against wickedness. And these chapters in Revelation teach us that God does the same even now. The world, as we saw last week, under the sway of Satan, develops all kinds of systems and philosophies which militate against God, against the Bible, against God's truth, against the church. And the world will find all kinds of methods and reasons to persecute the church and to try and silence those who want to speak up for Christ and for the truth of God. Much of the world actively opposes the God of the Bible, opposes his truth, opposes his people, and opposes those who wish to speak and live according to God's truth. Everyone who lives and supports or condones the anti-Christian world, everyone who's on that side against the things of God is on the side of those beasts that we looked at last week. And because they're on the side of everything that militates against God and against the church and against Christ, they bear the mark of the beast. They are like the beast. They don't actually have something tattooed on their foreheads or they don't have barcodes engraved on their skin. It's not that kind of mark. It's the state of their heart and their mind against God and against the gospel and against Christ. Now it's upon those same people that we're going to read about seven bowls of judgment in chapter 16 which are poured out. 
you'll notice some of the images that we've already had in previous chapters are repeated again. Same kinds of pictures and ideas and thoughts come out in this chapter. And that demonstrates that these seven bowls are not a new phase of Earth's history somewhere down the line. These seven bowls are all part and parcel of the world that has been, that is today, and that will continue to be until Christ returns. These seven bowls are all part and parcel of the world in which we live today. And they talk about the position of those who in this present age continue to live in rebellion against God, refuse to hear God's voice, and who refuse to repent from their sins. That's who it's going to talk about. In the opening verse of chapter 15, if you've got your Bible open there at these two chapters, it talks about seven last plagues. In them, the wrath of God is complete. Now there is, as I've said, there is one great and final day of reckoning coming, the day when Christ returns. And judgment will come to all men and women in a very particular way on that day at the second coming of Christ. But God moves in judgment against wickedness today, in this gospel age. And these seven plagues demonstrate how inescapable and how definite that judgment is. God moves definitely, God moves irrevocably against sinful men and women. And in that sense, the wrath of God is said to be complete. It cannot be escaped, and it is certain. There is none who will escape God's righteous judgment, either in this life or on that great final day. All will receive the condemnation that their sins deserve. Now, this is a sobering topic, isn't it? This is serious stuff. This should really spur us on in our proclamation of the gospel, shouldn't it? To know that this is what men and women and boys and girls without God who continue in their rebellious nature, who refuse to repent, that this is what God is going to bring upon them. It should drive us to our knees that men and women might be saved. It should urge us on in gospel proclamation. This is what's coming. They, they might not believe it. Many of them will poo-poo these kinds of things we're talking about this evening. Don't be ridiculous. But it should drive us on. You can be saved. You can be saved. I want to remind anyone who's here this evening, as we talk about these things, you can be saved. There is a God who loved you, who loved this world so much that he sent Christ to save you from your sins and to save you from this condemnation that the Bible talks about. You can be saved from it. Just turn to Christ in repentance. Trust in him. You can be saved. But just before we get these seven bowls, yet another picture of comfort for Christian believers. Have you noticed how many times as we go through this book, and there's been many more yet, 
Christ wants to reassure you of your eternal security in him if you're a Christian. Again and again and again, he reminds us. And here he does so now. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his, his name, standing on the sea of glass. And there they are, they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, and they praise the God of heaven. Wonderful. Now, the reference to Moses is almost certainly a reference to that time when Israel stood on the shore of the Red Sea and sang God's praise that he had just given them over the Egyptian army. The horses and riders had been thrown into the sea and God had destroyed the whole Egyptian army that were bearing down upon the nation of Israel. And there they praised and worshipped God for his salvation and for the greatness of his works. What a great work of salvation God did that day. Doing for the Israelites that they, what they could never have done for themselves. There is surely a reference to that there when it talks about the song of Moses. The sea of glass and fire. Images about God's holiness and God's righteous judgment. The Lord's people who've been given victory over the beast that's come against them. Here they are, standing before their saviour and their God. And these seven angels bring the plagues which are full of the wrath of God. Verses 6 and 7. And look what's being declared about these things in verses 3 and 4. Even about these bowls of wrath that are about to be, a pour, about to be poured out, what does it say? These things are great and marvellous. These things are just and true. You see, for God to act in judgment against sin brings glory to his name. It brings glory to him. God alone is holy. We thought about this this morning, the one who is light. And it brings glory to his name that God will act against wickedness and one day wipe it out completely. And it brings glory to God. Notice very carefully that these bowls of judgment come from, well, we can call it the, the very centre of heaven itself. Look, look at how it talks about um, verse 5. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So it's like from the inner sanctum of heaven, from the, from the very throne room of God, from the very heart of God, these seven bowls are coming. From God himself they come. From that place where God is worshipped, comes his righteous anger over sin. The bowls are full. There is no half measure. When God acts against sin, he doesn't do so in half measure. He does so in full measure. The bowls are full. The fullness of God's wrath is coming upon the world. And as we go through these seven plagues, and we're going to go through them quite quickly because actually they're fairly, fairly simple to understand, you'll notice again some resemblance to the plagues of uh, the Old Testament. 
the ten plagues brought against the nation of Egypt. You'll see some resemblance again. Uh, blood, hail. It's all the same God acting in the same way. Everything that God's created is his to use in judgment and punishment of the wicked. And the similarities which exist across these pictures in the book of Revelation um, show us that God actually may well use one single event, both as a trumpet warning for this one and as a bowl of wrath being poured out against this one. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But God is acting in this world actively against sin and against those who refuse to repent and against those who continue in open rebellion against the God of heaven. So let's go into Revelation chapter 16 and just have a look briefly at these things. The seven angels are given this instruction, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Bowl number one. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. That's bowl number one. A loathsome sore. Incurable and painful diseases and inflictions, afflictions come upon men and women. Now, we need to be very careful as we read some of these things because this book in Revelation does not give us the wisdom to know how or why God might be working in every case with every individual. We must be very careful not to judge a situation and say with full confidence, this is definitely God acting like this against them and for this reason. Let's take, for example, some terrible life-threatening disease that comes upon somebody. There's plenty of that in the world today. Now, for the Christian, that could simply be a fact of living in a fallen and broken world. This world is full of illness and disease. And it could simply be the fact that that's the world you're living in, that the Christian is afflicted with this, great, this uh, terrible disease. It's also certainly an opportunity to prove God in Christian testimony as God takes you through that situation. It could be for the Christian that that illness that God brings upon you is actually him using it to discipline you because he needs to restore you and he wants to restore you and he brings that affliction upon you that you might return to him and cry out to him and cling to him once more. And he brings you back to himself. That same illness to an unbeliever and all their loved ones could be a trumpet call, a warning that life is short and eternity is very long. And where you will be spending eternity is just around the corner. Or that same illness could be a bowl of wrath poured out as God moves against an impenitent and unrepentant sinner 
for such a bowl is being poured out here. What we do know is that the kind of person that this is brought upon when it is a bowl of wrath is that it will not be one who belongs to Christ. God will not bring this bowl of wrath upon you if you are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But God brings things against people. Bowl two. God uses the sea. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. It became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. God uses the sea. We visited a lifeboat station last summer. And we saw the written record on the wall of all the rescues undertaken in that place actually for over 150 years. Sometimes lives were saved. Sometimes lives were lost. Sometimes lives were both saved and lost in the same incident. They were trumpet calls. And they were bowls of wrath poured out. God is acting in his world against sinful men and women. The third bowl, verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The picture here is all the natural watercourses upon the land, rivers and springs of water claiming lives. But more importantly, within that section there, we're reminded that what God is doing here is God is acting in righteousness. God is acting in righteousness against the wicked. Now we tend perhaps to think only as of salvation as being an act of righteousness on God's part. But this reminds us that for God to be true to his righteousness, for God to be true to his truth, he must act against the wicked. In bowl four we have the heat of the sun. Verse 8, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Power was given him to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. So here the heat of the sun is described as being at God's disposal. But you see that as this bowl unfolds, there's another important message brought to us here. As this bowl is poured out, you might perhaps have thought that while they still have breath in that kind of situation, wicked men and women might, like the thief on the cross, cry out for mercy. While he lived, it was not too late for that dying thief to turn in repentance and faith to Christ. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and commands all men everywhere to repent. But like Pharaoh, so many just harden their hearts and they will not repent. 
we can be certain God knows their heart. And he makes no mistakes in those upon whom these bowls are poured out. Everything that he's doing is according to his justice and his truth. Everything that he's doing. Fifth bowl. This is poured out on the throne of the beast, on his kingdom. His kingdom becomes darkness. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed God, verse 11, because of their pains and their sores. But look again. They did not repent. And this is at the heart of the issue, isn't it? They will not repent. They will not turn back to God. This pictures God pouring out his wrath upon governments and authorities. Now, there have been many empires which have been brought crashing down with a very great fall. Former glory lies in ruins and all is lost. God is able to bring down entire anti-Christian systems in judgment. Their deeds and their actions have not gone unheeded by God. He knows, he's seen He's heard, he's seen the oppression of his people, even by governments and regimes. Their hatred of Christ and their persecution of his people has not been missed by God and it hasn't been forgotten by God and it hasn't been ignored by God. And God can and does bring a great downfall and with it he brings despair and much suffering. But he's able to act against things in this world which rise up against him and his people. And he has, and he does, and he will. This is a great assurance for us as Christians. Living in a world which seemingly is out of control, it isn't. And God is watching from heaven. And he will act against those who do not repent. Bowl 6, from verse 12 talks about a bowl being poured out on the river Euphrates, its waters drying up. Unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast. Spirits of demons performing signs which go to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Well, here's, a, here's another of those names that men and women have jumped on over the years. If you were around like I was during the days of the Cold War, there were many who said the Battle of Armageddon is certain. It's going to be a real battle. It's going to be a one-off battle. And back then, it was the battle between East and West. It was the battle between NATO and the USSR. And some even highlighted the place on the earth where they thought the battlefield was going to be. That's going to be Armageddon. Well, I don't think we're intended to use this scripture to make forecasts like that. The picture here 
as we've seen earlier, we've seen this back in chapter 11, is of Satan doing his worst against the church and seemingly the whole world rising up against Christianity. The whole world rising up against us. And it seems that there is nothing we're going to be able to do. Surely this is the end of the church. And let me tell you, there have been quite a few periods in Earth's history when if you were a Christian, it would have felt that way. Certainly would have felt that way 500 years ago when Christian men and women were being burned alive at the stake in England. Would have felt that way then. This is the end of the church. This perhaps, especially the name Armageddon, many scholars believe actually relates back to a time such as Judges 4 and 5 when Israel were against the Canaanites, the Canaan king Jabin and his commanding officer Sisera came against Israel. He had 900 iron chariots. It seemed as if they were an undefeatable foe. But two judges, Deborah and Barak, rose up and roused Israel. And God gave them a great victory over an apparent insurmountable foe. And they defeated them at Megiddo. All through the Old Testament, often when the enemy seems to be at its strongest and its greatest, when the nation of Israel seems to be at its weakest, when it seems as if all is up for them, then God moves and brings a great victory. There will be times in the history of the church, there have been, there will be, when it seems that Satan is doing his worst, the world is at its strongest and the church is at its weakest. But God is still God. Christ is still on the throne. Don't forget. And then in bowl seven, as with all of these other little images that we've had in Revelation, comes the final destruction of evil and it concludes with Christ's return and all things being drawn to a close. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, verse 17. A loud voice from heaven, it is done. Verse 18, there are noises and thunderings and lightnings. A great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. The greatest earthquake this world has ever known. Second half of 19, great Babylon was remembered before God to give her cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Every island flees away, the mountains were not found. Great hail from heaven falls upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent that's like the size of a rock. Men blasphemed God because of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And God finally will come in great destruction and bring in his, his final judgment. And the message of Revelation continues to speak to two different people. It speaks to those who as yet have never repented. The great warning from the Bible comes, God is coming in judgment against those who refuse to repent. Will you not repent and be saved? 
and the great encouragement for those who are Christ's. We're going to witness some terrible things in this world. It's a wicked world. And God is moving in righteousness and judgment against it. But God is God. And God is in control of his world. And all things are fulfilling that for which Christ has taken hold of that scroll and opened all the seals. And all is secure. And all is well. If you are in Christ. Are you? Are you?